So as we are continuing in our series on women in the Bible, today we're going through the book of Esther. And I'm super excited, and we're doing it a little bit differently. And can somebody put this in the offering for me? (laughs) Thank you. Okay, so I need my helpers. Everybody take one, one hand clapper and one kazoo. It will make sense. In a little bit, we're doing the sermon, we're going to do the sermon a little bit different today, and we'll explain how. So for those of you who've been in Sunday school with us, we've been kind of going through how to study the Bible, and one of the things that we talked about has been literary genre, and then also context. So as I was prepping this sermon and going back through the book of Esther, I realized it really doesn't lend itself very well because of the type of book that it is to picking it apart in a typical sermon that we see. Because the book of Esther was written to be read out loud. So this morning, I'm going to go through some of the context, and then I'm going to read the book of Esther from start to finish, and then we're going to wrap up with a little bit more of application at the end. So the kazoos and the hand clappers will make sense in a second, even if they don't make sense now. Um, And then really quick, I also want to go through my sources for today. So to prepare the background and the commentary, I went through the Cultural Background Study Bible, Also, my Old Testament notes from Dr. Miller's Old Testament class at Cedarville University. And then also a wonderful website called myjewishlearning.com. Again, all of that will make sense in a second. So before we start, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us one more time. Feel free to keep passing kazoos as, as I pray. All right, so Lord... I thank you so much for the opportunity to go through this part of your word in a creative way, and I pray that you would really speak through your words in the book of Esther. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so we're going to start with a couple bits of context and a little bit of backstory before we go through the actual book of Esther. And the first part of the context and the backstory that I want to go through is the history in the time that the events in the book of Esther happened. So during this time, it's set in the Persian rule over Judah. So at this time, the nation of Israel was separated into two different kingdoms. So you had the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And the kingdom of Judah, so my notes here didn't have my indentations, which makes it really hard to follow my outline. So I'm going to bring this over too. Okay, so Israel had ten tribes, and the the kingdom of Judah had two tribes. And in 605 B.C., and just as a reminder, in the B.C. era, dates work backwards, so smaller dates are closer to the time now. But in 605 B.C., Babylon came in, invaded, and took over Judah and deported all the Jews to Babylon. So everyone living in the kingdom of Judah was now living in Babylon under captivity. Then in 539, Persia came in, conquered Babylon under King Cyrus, and decreed at that time that all of the Jewish captives could return to their homeland. But most of them didn't. Most of them were pretty comfortable where they were, had built a good life for themselves, and so they continued to live in what was now the Persian kingdom. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, the land that God had given to the Israelites was pretty important and was pretty symbolic. So the fact that 
these people of God had the opportunity to return to the land. And King Cyrus even offered them the money to go back to their land and to rebuild it. But the fact that they're staying where they're comfortable means they're living a little in rebellion to God. Rather than going to the land, which was the physical place where they were in a place where God could bless them, they decided to stay in the land of their captors instead. So this is really a big deal. Isaiah and Jeremiah even urged them to return to the land that God had gave them, to be in the right place for God to bless them. But instead, they settled in Susa, which was the capital under the Persian Empire, where they could work on making a name for themselves. And King Cyrus, he was very tolerant of other religions, let them practice how they wanted, and that expanded to other people within his realm. But then, Cyrus died, and his son, Xerxes, or Hasserus, which is the a Hebrew name for Xerxes, and we'll be using it throughout today. Um, so he took over, and he really wasn't as tolerant, especially because in the first part of his reign, he had two insurrections and rebellions that came up that got kind of violent in how he quashed them. And so this memory of having to quash these rebellions is pretty fresh in his mind and will influence the events that we'll see in the book of Esther. Not only that, but in the process of quashing those rebellions, he kind of destroyed multiple temples, not necessarily Jewish temples, but temples that were places where his people worshipped. So he sets himself up from the beginning that he is not as tolerant as his dad, and he better get in line, and he's not going to tolerate people who are being rebellious to him. All right, so that's the history. Part two of the backstory is the actual book of Esther, and then also looking at the festival of Purim. So the book itself was actually written decades after the events that are recorded in this book. The actual book was passed down as an oral tradition before it was actually written out. So by the time the book was actually written down, the Jews had returned to the land and were facing a lot of difficulties as they rebuilt their nation and also as they rebuilt their temple. And so the book of Esther was a reminder of how God was looking out for them in hard times and working to protect them and encouragement as they were now facing hard times, rebuilding their nation as they were now in the land that God had given them. As far as genre goes, it's sort of history with a question mark because it really fits more under the genre of court tales, which is taking a prominent member in the king's court and writing a story about them. So the book of Daniel, it also falls under, or the story of Daniel also falls under court tales. And in the literary genre, it's not necessarily a real person who actually existed, but it's more like a novel that we would write today about someone who lived in the king's court. So whether or not Esther is an actual person is kind of up in the air, but this genre is a court tale and kind of like a novel that was written about King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus' court. So in a court tale, a hero uses their skill or their luck within a royal court to foil enemy plots, often based on real people and events. It's also a little bit of comedy, so throughout the book, they're pretty clearly making fun of Haman as this public official and making fun of his pride and kind of building up his pride, um, literarily. And there is absolutely zero reference to God throughout the book of Esther. God is never named. There 
contrary to what is typically written about, there's also not any mention of religious practice. Esther does fast, and the Jews do fast, but there's absolutely no mention of prayer with that fasting. Even when Mordecai tells Esther that deliverance for the Jews will come from someplace, he never mentions the name of God, which is not only unusual for the Bible, but is also unusual for works written in this era. Religion was incredibly important to people in this time period, and most of the novels, most of the works of literature that we have passed down from that time included religious practice, and the book of Esther doesn't, so it's kind of strange in that, in that aspect, and we'll talk about why. It also establishes the Feast of Purim. So the Feast of Purim was the first feast and festival that the Jewish people had that wasn't decreed in the Mosaic Law. So the Jewish people had several times that they celebrated together that God had told them to come together and celebrate as part of their religious practice and part of worshiping and drawing closer to God. This is the first festival that was created not out of that Mosaic Law, but that the the Jewish people decided to create for themselves. And the message behind this celebration is that no matter how bad the circumstances are, all will turn out well in the end. And the Feast of Purim was really a community holiday. They all come together, there's feasts, there's lots of drinking, lots of drinking. They also make baskets. They come together and they make baskets that they then go and hand out to the poor to be able to provide for the people in their community. And there's also very, very festive meals And then the book of Esther is read in the synagogue. And this is a very raucous affair. This is not a quiet reading of a book of scripture. This is very much an interactive reading where they are drinking. We can't turn church into a drinking game. So what we're doing this morning in in kind of the, the theme of Purim, when the book of Esther was read out loud in the synagogue, they would boo for the name of Haman and then cheer for the name of Esther and Mordecai. So the kazoos that you have in your hand, every time I mention the name Haman, we are going to boo on our kazoos, and every time I mention the name of Mordecai or Esther, we're going to use our little hand clappers. Thank you. So as um, a little bit of a reminder, in case you're like me and it's been a while since you have used a kazoo, this is how you use a kazoo. So the bigger end is the end that you're going to hum into. Don't blow through it. That's not going to do anything but hum into it. So go ahead and, and hum on your kazoo. Excellent. Okay, so now we're going to practice. If I say the name Haman, excellent. If I say the name Mordecai, hey. Esther, all right, excellent. And just as a side note, WikiHow, which is where I found this how to blow on a kazoo, would like you to know that if you practice enough, you too can become a kazoo recording artist. So as we continue to go through some of the context, I also want to go through some of the main characters that we'll see in this book. So Queen Vashti is the first queen that we're going to see, and she pretty quickly is gotten rid of in the book of Esther. And she's the original queen who's deposed because she refuses to obey the king's command. And in, the, in some of the cultural context that I was reading, she was considered to be a powerful, merciless shrew. So don't feel too bad for her. Um, and then we also have Xerxes, or Hasserus, and he is the king at this time, took over for his father, King Cyrus. 
And the memory of those insurrections and those rebellions that he quashed at the beginning of his reign is still very fresh in his mind. He's a bit of a show-off. We'll see that in the feast that he throws to celebrate his kingdom. And he's also a bit of a hothead. So there's sort of this pattern that develops in Esther where he burns with anger over something, some insult, and then he ruins someone's life or kills them, and then he feels better, and the anger passes, and, and he's all good. He's also very easily persuaded by those around him. So when he burns with anger, he's very susceptible to the suggestions of whatever everyone who's around him says. And he doesn't necessarily surround himself with the wisest counselors and advisors. So, and he also doesn't wish to appear weak. So this is pretty important to him. Not only is he a hothead, but it's really important to him that he appears to be a strong king. And he doesn't want to appear weak. And he views women more as objects of pleasure than as people. So then we come to Esther, or Hadassah. Nice. So Hadassah was her Jewish name, which names are very important in Jewish culture. And best as I can tell, Hadassah is derived from a type of myrtle tree, which has a very pleasant fragrance. And Esther definitely brings... um, She's, she's very well seen wherever she goes, so she brings that kind of pleasant fragrance around with her. And then the name, the Persian name that she has, Esther, comes from, comes from Ishtar, who was the goddess of love that was very heavily revered in this culture. So then we also have Mordecai. So Mordecai is a Jew who has remained in this territory, has remained in Persia rather than going back to the nation of Israel. And he takes in Esther. So Mordecai has a a history of looking out for kind of the least of these. Esther is an orphan who he takes in to be able to take care of her. Y'all can keep going even if I don't pause. Like that's that's totally fine. He is very, very loyal to his family, as is seen with him taking in Esther. But he's ashamed of his heritage, because he's definitely not living according to Jewish customs. And he hides the fact that he's a Jew when it's convenient for him, but not necessarily when it's inconvenient for him. And we'll go into that a little bit later. He genuinely grieves for God's people, but when he gains power, he doesn't acknowledge God in that. Also, he is introduced as the son of Jer, son of Shmi, son of Kish, a Benjamite. And this is important because it sets him up as a descendant of Saul. 1 Samuel 9 describes Saul as a son of Kish and a son of Benjamin. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a second. Um, but first, we're going to talk about Haman. There we go. So Haman the Agagite. He is a public official who is very much made fun of in the book of Esther. And kind of out of that, during the festival of Purim, they would have these plays where they were kind of, it was like the Jewish version of roasting their leaders. So there would be Purim plays where they would make fun of their public officials and their leaders. And that comes out of how Haman is treated in the book of Esther. So he likely held the position that controlled access to the king. There was a position within the court where uh, everyone who would want to bring a request to the king would have to come before this person, and it's likely that Haman was that person. So he would kind of filter the requests that were going to go into the king and then let through the ones that he felt were important or were good. He was very proud and very manipulative, 
and he is introduced as an Agagite. And we're going to talk about why that is important in the final part of our backstory. So backstory part four is the rematch. And this comes out of 1 Samuel 15. Because if you remember, Mordecai is a descendant of Saul. And Haman is an Agagite. And where this comes from is 1 Samuel 15. Haman is likely a descendant of Agag, Agag, who was the king over the Amalekites. So we're going to actually read through that um, really quick. So 1 Samuel 15. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said to them, to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought back Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best thing of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumptions as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So in this part of the backstory, you've got Haman. 
who is a descendant of the king of the Amalekites, who Saul did not kill as God had instructed him to. Not only that, but God had specifically said, destroy everything of the Amalekites. And instead, they did what's traditional in that time, and they took spoil and plunder for themselves. And Saul's trying to spin this as, oh, we took this so we could sacrifice it to God, and that's a good thing. Bringing good things to God to sacrifice is good. And what Saul comes back and said is, you missed the entire point. The point of it wasn't sacrifice. The point of it was your obeying what God had said. So the book of Esther has kind of a rematch that's set up here. Because you have the descendant of Saul, and you have the descendant of Agag, that are then coming together and having a rematch. And we'll come back to this as we go through the book of Esther. All right. So we're going to go through the book of Esther and kind of pause at different points for commentary. And water, because I'm going to need that. This also allows me to get back to my speech team days and have my little book with my story in it. (laughs) So Esther 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violent hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels. Vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Okay, so this feast that lasted for 180 days, and then there's a second feast afterwards where he's going, he's parading all these people, this, these diplomatic corps from different nations, and he's showing them all the greatness of his kingdom. And then he goes back and he throws this huge party, this huge, lavish party that's covered with wealth. They're drinking from gold cups, and they're drinking royal wine, which in this time, royal wine was very, very, very expensive. Wine was a rich person's drink. And so the fact that they were able to lavish it upon everybody for a very long period of time would have been very expensive. And rather than being, I mean, now we think of, oh, you're drinking a bunch of wine and as much wine as you think, well, that's a party. Here it was, well, that's a display of splendor. That's a display of your richness. And the fact that it specifically says that the edict was there was no compulsion around that drinking. So typically in that time, every time the king drank, you drank. And there was no stopping to the drinking. So you can imagine, in a long feast, (laughs) that would not be very conducive to health. But what King Ahasuerus said was, yeah, there's no compulsion. Each man can do what he wants. So this was actually him being very generous to his people, rather than making them follow the typical edict of the day. 
So King Ahasuerus, he needs wealth to accomplish his purposes. God doesn't. And that's going to be set up here throughout the book of Esther. All right. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehumen, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the queen with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all those who were versed in the law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Matha, Tarshish, Marys, Marsena, and Memuken, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti, because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memucan, in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before Queen Ahasuer- King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So the when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast. All women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and what the king did as Memuken proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. So this isn't necessarily the best way to handle when your ego is challenged. There's a couple things I want to pull out of this. So it says that the king is merry with wine, which we pretty much know means his judgment is impaired. But the Persians actually typically made major decisions when they were drunk. And if they made a decision when they were sober, then they had to go back when they were drunk and review that decision To be fair, this part of history is also recorded by the Greeks who didn't have a very high view of the Persians, so this might also be their uh, presuppositions against the Persians coming through and how they recorded history. And when he um, commanded that Queen Vashti be brought before the king with her royal crown, so there there were several layers of wives that the king had, and all the women in the harem, or the female part of the household, were considered to be wives of the king. But there were different layers there. There were concubines who didn't get called before the king very often and didn't have a very high standing, all the way up to queen, which is where Vashti was. The fact that she was being paraded out just to look at was really something that was more deserving of the status of a concubine than of a queen. So this was an insult against her, and then he also requests that she come out with her royal crown, showing that she's a queen, but at the same time, she's being treated like a concubine. So that's very much a disconnect that would not have sat well with Vashti, which is probably part of why she refused. 
probably not smart to refuse the command of a king who we know does not like his ego being challenged, but that, that probably is part of why um, she did refuse. Also, when it says that this command went out to every province in its own script, this was not typical. Typically, edicts from the king were sent out in one language, and then it was upon the people to be able to understand that, because there were a lot of different nations that were under his rule. So to translate it into every single language would have been a huge undertaking. Huge undertaking. So it also kind of shows how much of a grudge he bore against Vashti because he had this happen. He had this huge undertaking of translating it into every language, then go forth um, throughout his kingdom. Pause for water. (laughs) All right. So let's jump back in to the book of Esther. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather, them, to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king. And so he did so. This is not a typical way of finding a queen. Especially in this culture. Having the king find a new queen was typically a very political endeavor in that they were trying to find someone who would be a good alliance for them or to build up political relationships with other nations through the marriage of a king and a queen. So this was really not typical at all in that culture, and also wouldn't be typical today. And then also, just kind of as a side note, um, we have a very specific connotation around the word harem. In this culture, what it likely was was just all the females in the household that were kind of set apart. And within this culture, it was very, very frowned upon for a man to come close to one of the king's wives. So one of the king one of the women living in the king's part of the household or in this harem, even a man coming within seven paces of one of the king's wives was forbidden. So part of why they had them segregated in their own part of the household. All right. I think it skipped a slide. That's, oh, it's black here, but it's not black there. We're good. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shmi, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, son of king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. 
Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. I love it. You guys are doing so good. (laughs) Okay, so what's kind of going on here? We've already sort of talked about how this lineage of Mordecai sets him up to be a descendant of Saul and sets up the rematch that is happening here. And we talked about the meaning behind uh, the name of Esther and how it's really both her Hebrew name and her Persian name are people who are held, um, imply that she was going to be able to find favor with other people and that she was going to bring pleasure to other people. When it said that many young women were gathered, likely, historically, all the young women who were gathered as part of this queen search then ended up becoming one of the king's wives. So when we look at each of them going in for their one night with the king, and we, I know I've heard sort of contextualized, well, that was probably sin because they were messing around with someone who was not their husband, and so why would Esther be a part of that? In all likelihood, each of the young women who were brought before the king then ended up becoming one of the king's wives and part of his harem. Now, whether they stayed at the status of concubine or rose through the ranks of the harem is is another thing. But in all likelihood, each of these women were going to be considered to be one of the king's wives by the time all was said and done. Also, we see that the eunuch who had charge over all of these women specifically brought Esther her portion of food. So if you think back to another one of the court tales with Daniel, when he was brought court food, he refused to eat it and said, no, this is not, this is not kosher. This is not prepared in the way that I am allowed to eat it as part of honoring God, and I will not eat it. Bring me instead vegetables. And he had this whole list of foods that then were brought to him. In contrast, we have Esther, who is in the king's palace eating the king's food, which is definitely not prepared in the way that God had prescribed to the Israelites. So we see that she is very much blending in, refusing to talk about her heritage, not claiming her heritage, and blending in to the people of the court. All of the laws that God had written for the people of Israel were designed to make them set apart, to make them stand out as his people. So Esther is living in contradiction to this and isn't necessarily a perfect heroine at all in this story because she's very much blending in with this pagan culture. But we also see that God favors her despite her disobedience. And God brings her favor within the court and advances her throughout the ranks. God will accomplish his purpose. All right. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this is the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months of spices and ointments for women, when the young woman who went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shagzaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. 
Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the other women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So each woman, each woman who went before the king, she was with him for an entire night, so there was definitely a physical aspect of entertainment that was going on. But beyond that, it's thought that they were expected to entertain the king for the entire night. And beyond just the physical aspect that was there, there was also probably um, other forms of musical or literary entertainment that they were expected to bring before the king for that night. So when it says that Esther consulted with Haggai, the eunuch who was there, she was likely also looking at other forms of entertainment um, to bring before the king for that night. And she also knew who to ask for what to bring before the king to, bring her more, to make her more likely to bring favor. So we see this contradiction between the king, who isn't necessarily taking the wisest advice on how to rule his kingdom or his wives, and Esther, who is making sure she goes to the right person to get the right advice before she goes to the, before the king. Also, the job of the eunuch who is in charge of the harem It was basically his job to make sure that the squabbles between the women didn't turn into violence. I would not want that job. (laughs) All right. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or people, as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, and he told it, uh, uh, sorry, I got so caught up in the hand clappings that I I lost my spot. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. the son of Hamadetha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Hazarus. I I love you guys having to flip between the two like that. (laughs) Thank you for playing along and being good sports about this. 
So now we have set up the other side of the rematch because we have the descendant of the Amalekites who has this prominent place, and then we have Mordecai who is refusing to bow down to him. So a little bit about that. We, I know I've typically heard this set up as, oh, well, Mordecai was honoring God. But Mordecai never claims his relationship with God and his allegiance to God as being the reason that he didn't bow. He just says, oh, I'm a Jew. And this, like this, this bowing down and paying homage to Haman from the research that I've done isn't necessarily like a, a bowing down in worship, but it's like if the Queen of England were to walk in, I'm a curtsy to her because that's the proper form of respect to be shown to the Queen of England. <laughs> Chris, are you not going to curtsy? <laughs> It seems like culturally this is something very similar to curtsying to the Queen of England. And even Mordecai isn't setting this up as so much as a religious battle or a showing allegiance to who is really ruling battle. It's more of a, I'm a Jew, I'm not going to do it kind of a thing. So not necessarily the most God-honoring way to take a stand sort of setting it up as, as more of an ethnic battle than, than anything else. All right. <clears throat> In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries." So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. So a couple of notes on this passage. First, when, when Haman is talking about the Jews and he's saying they do not keep the king's laws, Remember those rebellions that Xerxes has had to crush in the first few years of his reign. Haman is purposefully making reference to that and saying, these people don't follow your laws, they don't honor you, they might rise up in rebellion. So it's to your profit not to tolerate them, but to quash them instead. Also, he offers a bribe of 10,000 talents of silver. This is a huge, huge Bribe. If I'm reading my sources correctly, this was two-thirds of the gross domestic product of the nation of Persia, which would be trillions of dollars in like a U.S. kind of context. So this is a very, very large bribe that Haman is offering for the pleasure of destroying the Jews, who he says it's not to the king's profit to tolerate, but it is to your profit to let me destroy them, kind of a thing is what's going on here. And then the signet ring that the king took off and gave to Haman— So in this time, the way that the king would have sealed his edicts was with a piece of wax, and then he had his signet ring, which he would literally imprint into that wax. So handing Haman the signet ring is kind of like you giving someone else permission to sign documents for you. 
if it had the king's seal on it, this was a very important document. And Haman now has the ability to make the king's seal on any document that he chooses. This is giving a lot of authority and a lot of power to one man and taking it away from the king, really. Pause for water. (laughs) (laughs) Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So this this edict that's going out is probably going out to the military posts in each city, so it's not necessarily opposed to all the citizens to go and kill the Jews on this specific day. It's probably more of a military declaration and military command that's going out. And then towards the end of the passage, you hear about, you know, the city of Susa was thrown into confusion, set up against the king and Haman were drinking to their good fortune and to their plan. Here, the Jews are really in this, this confusion and probably hurt and, and wondering if God will come to rescue them. They know they're not living in the land that God has promised to them. They know they're probably not following all the commands of God, especially the the Mosaic law that was set out to make them a people set apart. And here are these people who are threatening to completely destroy them on edict from the king who is over the kingdom where they are living. Will God come and rescue them? Will God rescue his rebellious people? When Mordecai learned all that had been done... Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out in the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate in sackcloth, and in every province where the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young woman and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed, She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathok, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathok went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews— Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. 
Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think that... Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young woman will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the perfect time for the Jews to pray, for Mordecai to say that God will come up and deliver the Jews, and as they're fasting, to fast and pray, because those two things go together in the Bible so well and so often. But it's almost like they're intentionally leaving God out of this. Because Mordecai, when he's talking to Esther, doesn't identify where the deliverance from the Jews will come from. He doesn't say that God will come in and deliver them. He just says deliverance will come from another place. And as the Jews are mourning, there's no mention of them praying. There's no mention of them seeking God. They're just mourning and fasting. And this is something that is very, very unusual for this mourning and this fasting to be seen without prayer also coming there. These people are not following God. They're following some of their traditions, but they're not truly following and obeying God. Also, note that in this culture, you couldn't go to the throne room without being called. And remember that Haman's position within the court is likely one where any request to go before the king, especially if you haven't been summoned, has to go through him. So what, Esther's supposed to just go and be like, hey, Haman, I got to go talk to the king about you know, what your, your plan to kill my people and your plan to kill the Jews, probably heavy on Hester, Esther's mind as she considers going before the king, in addition to the fact that she knows that the king does not extend his favor and his scepter to her, she is going to be put to death for coming before the king without being requested. Also consider the fact that she hasn't been called to come before the king in 30 days. This probably means that she's fallen out of favor a little bit with the king, and she's probably worried that he's not going to send the scepter to her, even though she has found favor with him in the past. So, after they fasted, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king... Let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? 
it shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So I've, I've heard it often said that in this, Esther is showing her cowardice, and instead of presenting her request to the king, saying, yeah, come to a feast. Oh, you're at the feast? Okay, come to another feast, and then I'll tell you what I really want. But in this culture, that was actually pretty typical in Persian culture. If you have a very big request, rather than going to the person with that entire request at once, you sort of lead them up to it with smaller requests, like the feast. So get them to say yes, so they're already in a yes-saying mood before you come to them with a big request. We use this now as a sales tactic. There is nothing new under the sun. Get them saying yes, and they're more likely to say yes to your larger requests. Haman also is pretty high on life right now because he's been asked, along with the king, he is the only person who's been asked to come to the queen's feast. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife, Zeresh, and his king said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Okay, so fifty cubits high is like sixty-five... Hold on, let me get my number right. Sixty-two and a half feet, which is like six stories high. So what's a gallows made for? How high does something have to be to hang a person? Right about seven feet. Yeah. This was 62 and a half feet high. This is six stories high. Little bit of overkill going on here. Now, historically, there's also some question. A gallows now, we definitely identify as something to hang someone on, but in this culture, they also enjoyed killing people and then like sticking their bodies or their heads on stakes to put on display for everyone as a warning. And there's some question of whether the gallows that's mentioned here might actually be like one of those sticks to stick somebody's head or body on and display them prominently. Right. So even if that's the case, how high of a stick do you need to stick somebody's head on it? to give a warning to other people. Like, this is definitely overkill. And this is sort of the extent of Haman's wrath against Mordecai and also his pride. (laughs) How did you get by? (laughs) Christy, I am very sorry when your husband brings home all the kazoos and all of the hand clappers. So on that 
that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told Bignatha and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Who would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry! Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have listed. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman returned to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but surely fall before him. This is what we call dramatic irony. And it is a wonderful thing when God is working for his people. Also, As his wife and his wise men told him, this was probably a sign that Mordecai should abandon his plan because it wasn't so much, or that Haman should abandon his plan against Mordecai and the Jews because it wasn't so much going to work out for him. Like, it didn't so much work out for him here. Also, notice how they're making fun of Haman in the book as they're writing it and making fun of his pride and as he's going to the king and listing all these things that should be done and then he has to go and do it to the guy who is making him burn with rage. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be granted to you even to the half of my kingdom. It shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. 
And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that! So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. So obviously God is working for his people in this instance. But I find it a little bit ironic that Esther has just come before the king and said, look, this guy's trying to kill me and my people. And the the king gets mad, stands up, and leaves Esther with the very person that she has just said is trying to kill her and her people. Like I said, Xerxes or Ahasuerus is not necessarily the most wise man and doesn't do well in thinking through his anger. And instead, very much acts out of his wrath. Also, you know how we had talked about how it was forbidden for a man to even come within seven paces of one of the, queen, the king's wives? So here Haman is, accidentally or not, literally falling on the couch where Queen Esther is reclining, which is a pretty typical way for them to be sitting around as they were sitting around and eating. Um, but especially when the king comes back upon this scene, you know it's not going to work out well for Haman because culturally that was incredibly, incredibly offensive and very verboten in this culture. Okay, good. I hit everything I wanted to hit. So, on that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold! I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they may have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time, the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the, king, in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. 
Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force or any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day, throughout all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was a gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So this is an awesome reversal of the Jews' fortune. They went from much confusion in the citadel to rejoicing because of this reversal. Now, notice that um, Ahasuerus had said that the king's decree cannot be reversed. He really doesn't want to go back on his word. He really doesn't want to go back on what he had written. So what has to happen instead is a new edict has to go out. And he once again has given his signet ring to someone within his court. This time it's to Mordecai and Esther to be able to make commands. So the, the edict that goes out to the Jews then is the ability to assemble and to gather and to defend themselves. So this is giving them the authority to create their own army to fight back against the people who are coming to attack them. And this permission to kill all the women and children and to take the plunder is being set up within the book as sort of a parallel to the command against the Amalekites. Different Different circumstances, also a different command that's going out, but it's being set up as this parallel and this rematch between the descendant of Saul and the descendants of the Amalekites. <clears throat> now on the t- in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. Then the Jews struck all their enemies with a sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Pershandatha and Dolphin and Espatha and Poratha and Adalia and Eridatha and Parmashada and Arasai and Aradai and Vaisatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? 
Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hand on the plunder. So the Jews, instead of being attacked, and instead of being wiped out, have this opportunity to then attack their enemies and wipe them out. And you'll, you'll notice that it was repeated twice. They laid no hands on the plunder. And this is set up as the Jews obeying that initial command to Saul to kill everything within the Amalekite kingdom and all the oxen and all the sheep and all that good stuff that they saved to sacrifice to God. So whereas in that first bit, they took plunder for themselves instead of killing it all as God has commanded them, now this is seen as the rematch going back and they are laying no hands on the plunder. We'll talk a little bit more about that at the end. Are they really obeying God? Is that really what God said? They're laying no hands on the plunder, but it seems kind of strange that that's the only command of God that they're following throughout this entire book. Now the rest of the Jews, who were in the king's provinces, also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that day a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pure, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, to the term pure, Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full, writ- gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, 
and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews, and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people, and spoke peace to all his people. The end. Okay, so that's the book of Esther. So what? <laughs> what, what did it mean to the people then, and kind of what does it mean to us today? And I'm going to start actually with how it ends. Because we go through this whole book where God is watching out for his people. And God is taking care of his people. And it ends not with the greatness of God, but with the greatness of Mordecai. Which, honestly, we would kind of expect from the way that the Jews have been living for this time. But it's still, these, the people of God were not living in glory or honor to God. They were not seeking to glorify God. They were not seeking to honor God, to honor the commandments that he had given them, to honor the way of life that he had given them. But God was still faithful to his promise to preserve his people. I think that's the biggest message of the book of Esther. God is faithful to his promise. God does not rely on the other people in his covenant to be faithful to that covenant in order for him to hold up his end of the bargain. God is faithful to his people regardless of how faithful they are to him. So you remember when you were talking about the fruit of the Spirit? That faithfulness of God is the same faithfulness that we are called to emulate. So take heart in the fact that God is faithful to us as his people brought under the new covenant, regardless of our faithfulness to him. And he will continue to work in our lives to bring his glory and his honor and to fulfill his promises, regardless of how faithful we are to him, which is very comforting. And I hope that that grace and that faithfulness of God and the kindness of God also brings us to repentance in that. Because I think it should bring in us a spirit of humility that we serve a God who is so great and loving and faithful to his promises, regardless of how broken we are towards them. Also, like we talked about with the fruit of the Spirit, this is the faithfulness that we are called to emulate as we work to be more like God and as we work to be um, more and more refined through the Spirit. It's kind of, kind of a high calling, right? Because that faithfulness isn't something that we necessarily have the ability to emulate in our own power, which is why it's the fruit of the Spirit and not something that we are able to do on our own. Also, the example of Esther. So this is a sermon series about women and their role in the Bible. So I want to make sure I talk about what Esther and her life can teach us. And honestly, as I was looking at this, I kind of had a hard time being able to pull something out of it because it seemed like the book was really more about Mordecai than about Esther, even though it was named after her. But if we look at the way that Esther operated, while, yes, she was living not necessarily under obedience to God and is a flawed heroine, she was really good at seeking out people to give her good advice. She was queen, and she could have easily sought out people who would just tell her what she wanted to hear, but instead, she went to Mordecai to hear what she needed to hear about the deliverance for the Jews and what her role was to be in that. And then, finally, so looking at the rematch. 
This book was also culturally set up as a rematch between Saul and the Amalekites and as a chance for the people of God to be able to have a redo on that disobedience that then led to Saul being rejected as king. And I really struggled with this because I was reading through Esther and over and over again at that end it said they laid no hand on the plunder. And this is sort of set up as, oh, good job, Israel. You're, you're doing what you were supposed to. But that's the only command of God that they're following throughout this book, that laying no hands on the plunder. And then, as I was praying about it, I realized that that's exactly the point. Because what did God say to Saul through Samuel? He said, look, it wasn't these sacrifices that I desired. It was your obedience. And so you can almost hear God saying the same thing to the Israelites here throughout the book of Esther. Look, it wasn't these sacrifices. It wasn't this you not laying hands on the plunder. That's not what I wanted. What I wanted was your obedience. And that was the sacrifice that I wanted from you. Not any of this other stuff. How often do we miss the same mark? How often do we try to bring things before God as our way of serving him, whether it's the service that we do, or coming to church, or preaching, or modesty, or any of those things. How often do we bring those before God and say, look, see what I'm doing for you? And God turns to us and says, that's, that's great, but that's not what I wanted. What I really wanted was your obedience, and your heart being in this, and you seeking me. So that's kind of how I want to end today. What are you trying to bring before God that isn't what he really wants? And instead... I hope that you turn to him with your heart and with your obedience. So with that, I think Chris is going to come up and start communion. (laughs) Thank you for sticking with me. I know that was long books to read through, so thank you for humoring me in my reading of Esther.